What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Run Your Mouth Podcast. I've got a hell of an episode coming at you today. We were uh, getting you all prepped for the boogaloo, and uh, now that's not the only risk on your plate. There's more going on out there. There's a coronavirus, and uh, we have reason to suspect that it might be man-made. It might be coming as cover for crashing the economy, and I figured, why not track down an expert, someone who's done their homework, (laughs) someone who might be able to help us out, give us some insight, and so... uh, Welcome to the show, Mr. Sam Parker. It's lovely to have you here tonight. Hey, thanks for having me, Robbie. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Now, you uh, you ran in the, the last go-around against Mitt Romney, which fucked that guy, so I appreciate your efforts. <laughs> what you said. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're welcome. Um, are you, uh, you going like, to uh, go at that again? I don't really know that much about the actual people running for political offices. Are you like... In, uh, yeah. Uh, wh- well, I'll tell you what, uh, what happened was uh, 2018 was a unique situation, right? So Orrin Hatch had been uh, the senator in Utah for 42 years, which was ironic because when he ran back in the 70s, the same year that I was born, actually, uh, 76, he, uh, he, 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 his slogan is, I, I think his slogan was something like, what do you, uh, what do you call a three-term or a two-term senator uh, in Washington, D.C.? And, and the punchline was you call him home. And that was his, and that was his, uh, that was his big zinger that got him the win in 1976. And then of course he just kept running and was a Senator for 42 years, you know? So, you know, the usual elite, uh, ruling class, you know, they don't give up power until they die type stuff. Uh, anyway, so he announced he was retiring and there was a lot of scuttlebutt that Mitt Romney was going to uh, was going to enter the race, and so he basically just crowded everybody out, like nobody of any significance declared. And and there were some people in the state who, uh, like Jonathan Johnson, who had run for governor in 2016, who uh, had a lot of political clout, and I really respected. And I reached out to him and wanted him to run. He didn't run, and some other people were thinking about running, and th- and they didn't run. And and I said, darn it, there's just no good. Uh, there are no good. Uh, people running and I don't know one night on a whim I was just like screw it like if nobody else is going to jump in I'll jump in and I'll and and see here in Utah we have something called a caucus convention system which most states don't have they don't really understand how it works but basically you're you're uh you you go meet with your neighborhood one night uh one night out of the year and or during campaign season and you talk about the issues and the candidates and then you you select people to be go be your representative at the state convention and then for several weeks thereafter whoever's whoever becomes those neighborhood delegates gets special access to all the candidates and if you're a candidate you have to woo these delegates you have to talk to them you have to reach out to them you have to explain your position to their satisfaction or else they will not support you they will not give you their vote at convention and if you don't get out of convention, you can't get on the primary ballot. So that's how that's basically how it works. I gave you a really quick thumbnail sketch, but I'm like, screw it. Then if nobody else is going to do it, I'll do it. And I ended up coming in fourth out of 12 people. So wow. on a on a shoestring, you know, so and I ended up affecting the election. Uh, you know, uh, Mitt Romney didn't win at the convention. He came in second place. I helped that happen. And I actually brought up some issues that became prominent talking points through the campaign. So I'm pretty proud of what I accomplished. All right. So let's get into some of the yeah. real risk on the table sure. right now. And lucky for us, yeah. it's, it's not Romney because no one likes him. And so we don't have to concern <laughs> ourselves with that. You know, he tried to backstab Trump, wasn't successful. And he got so played. Multiple times. Yeah. 
yeah. times. So, you know, Romney, like, uh, listen, I hope at some point maybe you, you beat him and uh, you do more fantastic things in the Senate than that fellow. But, you know, the bigger risk on our plate right now is this coronavirus uh, finally has broken ground in our country. It's uh, spreading in other countries. And so first, let's just uh, I'm very open to the idea that this is uh, purposeful from government. Um I would say the two most reasonable theories I saw along those lines is first is, and uh, I haven't seen too many other people say it, but it's logical to me. I fully am, and you might not agree with me on this, but I'm, I'm highly against the Fed. I find that they really create bubbles, a boom and bust cycle in the economy. They're not doing anyone any Absolutely. favors. Um, and I do think that when the next economic crash happens in order to protect their interests, they're going to try and look for something to point to. I thought maybe it was going to be a war with Iran. Um, but in this case, it could potentially be a coronavirus where they could say, hey, listen, if it wasn't for that unforeseen risk, if it wasn't for this absolute disaster that shut down the economy, we would have been great. And we all know that that's not true. At some point, this house of cards is going to come tumbling down because they've continued to prop it up with low interest rates and just pumping money into the economy. So I think that it is reasonable that they could use something like this to duck for cover. The other thing I saw that was interesting um, is that maybe China did this in order to kind of put an end to the Hong Kong protest that that situation, which I haven't really been following. It's funny with these protests, with the protests out in France, the protests out in Hong Kong, it kind of gets coverage for about two weeks and then it just disappears and you forget that it's going on. Um, so I guess the Hong Kong protests, they're still in action and uh, they think that maybe, hey, the China government wanted everyone to be staying home or worse than that. They wanted a way that they could start extraditing people to China and that um, I guess the, that was part of what the protest was about. So they wanted to collect people under the guise of um, we need to put you into a quarantine. And so they started, you know, taking people. I don't know how true this is. I'm just saying these are the kind of the theories I've seen floated. So sure, let's at least yeah. just place some of the cards on the table um, <laughs> before we get into, um, I guess, all the evidence that you've collected to say that this is certainly a man-made incident. Um, let's just put some of the cards on the table of theoretically, like what, in your opinion, firstly, do you think that this okay, is so purposeful or an accident? Super, you want to yeah. start with super speculation and then back up into the more concrete. Exactly. Okay. Well, okay. If you want, so if we want to get fun, I call them shenanigans and schemes, right? Okay. And these, these global elites, these ruling elites, first of all, I have a, I have a little, a little line that I'm trying to popularize. And that is uh, the ruling elites don't uh, hold themselves to account or don't hold each other to account. They hold accounts on each other. All right. Buying and trading chits as desired. Right. So I'll say that one more time. The ruling elites don't hold each other to account. They hold accounts on each other, uh, you know, trading and, and, and buying and trading and, uh, and cashing in favors and chits as, as they desire. So um, these people are all connected. You know, the big money runs things and, and the bigger the money and the bigger the systems, the bigger the money that runs them. Right. So these globalists, they're interconnected. They have their little secret networks and organizations. Uh, you know, you, you have your more public faced ones like your Bilderbergers or the Council on Foreign Relations or the Trilateral Commission or the Atlantic Council. Uh, you know, you know, these super, uh, you know, these these front groups. Right. That that are sort of feeder mechanisms for uh, more elite operations, if you will. And they're all, these people are all tied together. I saw a couple of weeks ago how Jeff Bezos, you know, who 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 runs the rag Washington, uh, the Washington uh, Post, right? Uh, he just had a huge party uh, in Washington D.C. And I saw pictures of Eve, uh, Ivanka and Jared Kushner, uh, um, you know, 
palling around with everybody and stuff. And I'm like, okay, here you're, you're, you're what you're palling around with Jeff Bezos, whose rag attacks Trump like multiple times every day with the most ridiculous stuff. Uh, these people pal around. They're part of a club. We're not part of it. Right. Uh, so it's really kind of hard to pull apart, you know, all their machinations and all their reasons. But I like one theory that I think has a lot of traction is this Bill Gates, uh, the Bill Gates um, spearheaded depopulation movement. You can get on YouTube and find interviews and and TED Talks where he talks about uh, vaccines and abortions being used to lower world population. Right. And uh, we know that he funds these these uh, uh, a lot of uh, vaccine development and biological research. Uh, we know he he funds the Purebright Institute in uh, in the UK uh, that has patents on some of these vaccines and on some of these coronaviruses. Uh, he just he just ran uh, a global pandemic simulation like what four weeks or six weeks before this one broke out, and and they used a coronavirus as the uh, as the pathogen as the agent of the pandemic, and then whoa, all of a sudden just a few weeks later we have an, a real outbreak that looks just. Uh, just like the one they simulated uh, and you can get on YouTube and watch those videos and watch that simulation. So, uh, you know, if you want to put on your, your, you know, your, your super, you know, your super corrupt uh, conspiracy theory hat, you can say, well, uh, Bill Gates is like one of these, you know, these gazillionaires who's got so much money, he's got nothing but time on his hands to figure out how to, you know, in impose upon us his ideal, picture of the world his ideal vision of the world right and he know we know that he is all in on you know reducing population reducing uh co2 emissions which really just translates to reducing economic output and prosperity and these people they're they're so far above us they think that they can just you know you would uh, think, they think after that, falling so behind in technology to apple he'd have some humility in terms of establishing the, yeah it seems like the latest. It seems like the latest Microsoft Office updates always make it worse rather than better. It's like yeah. it hasn't been good for fifteen. Also, years or the idea, but, but yeah. the idea of becoming a billionaire and going, "Wow, I've amassed all this wealth. Now let me figure out how to kill a lot of people." That's what I'm going <laughs> right. to do. Like I, I've got well, all this money. I'm great at like operating systems. I'm smarter than anyone. Let me use all these resources and figure out how to get rid of a lot of the population. <laughs> Well, lest people think that this is crazy, you can get online and you can read papers, UN papers and UN representatives and all sorts of people who believe in depopulation and who believe that the current population is unsustainable and that we need to reduce population. These people are out there. They're out there. And some of them have money. Some of them have a lot of money, right? So it doesn't take a genius to figure out that if I have a lot of money and I really believe in something, then I put my money towards those causes, right? And you get down the rabbit hole and you get down that commitment curve and uh, pretty soon you're doing things that the average person just would be smacking their right. head going like, what are you thinking, dude? What, <laughs> right? what, so that's a super conspiracy, right? What's so fun about um, that is that one is it, it exposes some of like the uh, harsh realities of how evil persists in the world. And one of them is that evil people are like, let's just assume that all that's true. Bill Gates is using his wealth and power because he wants to... He thinks that we have a population issue and he's going to be the one to make the hard choice and figure out how do we curb population right. growth. OK, he's going to make the hard choice. If he's he got to make. Right. To, right. Yeah. But what's fascinating about that is that he's got this belief that what he's doing is good. And that's such an interesting factor about evil people is that even they 
conjure, hey, I'm doing something for like for the greater good. Like even read about what Hitler was trying to do. He had a vision for the greater good. Hitler didn't think he was an evil dude. But then what's more interesting than that is that the only way to sell it to us is Bill Gates is not trying to win everybody over with, hey, there's a hard decision that needs to be made here. We got to curb population growth. Instead, he goes, hey, I'm out in these foreign countries and I'm spending all my wealth to try and help out the people who need help here. I'm creating these, uh, I'm turning shit into water or whatever the hell he did with that machine. Yeah. And I'm trying to fight uh, the, I, I think at one point he was fighting Zika virus, whatever the fuck he was doing. Um, He's fighting lots of viruses yeah. with vaccines because it, one of the reasons is because he thinks that it will reduce population. Now, people hear that and they think, oh, they're putting something in the vaccine that's going to kill us and and hurt us. And maybe that's true. I don't know. But uh, there is actually evidence to show that when people are healthier, the, uh, married people are healthier and couples are healthier and have healthier offspring, they actually have fewer kids. So uh, so the more people that get vaccinated and the more, you know, the more kids are healthy, then the fewer the kids these couples have to make up for the, the infant mortality. And it actually lo- there's data that shows that uh, well vaccinated communities, the, uh, the child uh, birth rate. And population growth actually goes down. No, I get that. So you have we, you, you have a couple girls, and you keep screwing because you want a guy kid. I get it, or you yeah, want to get yeah. a couple idiots out of the way. Um, so I mean, if you put it that <laughs> way, it doesn't sound like that cruel. Because in other words, they're just trying to help people have healthier babies, so that we have less dumb disease babies around. Well, yes, but because they want less population. He specifically says we need to slow population or bring it down, and vaccination, he says, is one way to do that. So, so it's not like, it's not completely like altruistic, like, oh, I just want to people to be healthy. I want people to be healthy. Yes. But partly I want them to be healthy so that they'll have fewer kids. Right. Right. So it's, it's actually kind of anti-family in a way. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I believe in the sanctity of family. I believe the, the family is the bedrock of a healthy functioning society and, and it's our future and, and children and people, people are our greatest resource. Uh, these people who believe in depopulation think that, you know, gold or oil or, or something is our greatest resource, but it's not really, it's really actually people, right? Without people, that stuff's meaningless. Uh, so I think there's a fundamental difference, a, a slight a difference in philosophy there. His, his dad was the head of Planned Parenthood when he was a kid. Uh, so he, he's been around this idea of depopulation and reducing reproduction. It's natural to him. It's been, he's been around it his whole life. And again, I, if you listen to his Ted talk, he talks about how through reproductive health, which is code for abortion and through, and through vaccinations, we can reduce the world population. Now, not, uh, vaccines, not by killing people, just by preventing you from having kids. And of course, abortions by preventing you from having kids. That's such an interesting character case study because like if you're the doctor or person behind Planned Parenthood um, I mean not only do you have to really believe that what you're doing is okay but each time you do it like we, we like to excuse our behavior and you're reinforcing that you really have a belief that this isn't murder and so to be the child of I never heard that but be the child of a person who was a strong supporter of Parenthood you're, it, that's like religion where you're really within that reality. Not that I'm, uh, I'm not bashing religion here in any way, but I'm just saying like yeah. that really puts you into the reality of, oh, allowing people to abort is like, that's like a top goal of what we do here. That is really important family yes. value. And so to be second generation within that system, within that kind of structure of religion, um, I could see why building off of that could create a pretty horrific individual. Yeah, like uh, he, uh, I read he when he, I read an article that you know that was quoting him, and he talked about how as a kid, you know, like over the dinner table having these types of conversations, right? Uh, and 
like so to bring up re religion into it i think you're right on i think you know human beings are fundamentally religious beings we can't get away from it now if you try to push out like traditional religions like christianity or islam or or judaism or, or whatever it is uh it doesn't mean you're leading a religion free life uh, humans will find something else to replace that religious uh portion of themselves in my opinion i think that's why a lot of atheist leftists will really they'll really uh grab on to government you know government is is what we're going to use and, and and believe in and that's going to be our value system but whatever your value system is people or ideological system people will religiously adhere to it and 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 find religion in their life. I, uh, one. I agree hundred percent. It's the Bob Dylan song. You better serve somebody might be the devil yep. might be the Lord. And for so many people, it's just, you're serving consumerism, uh, your own, yeah. you know, running after pleasure or on the real dumb side, the extreme left and, uh, trying to police other people's no, no words. So, you know, yeah. And this seems to be something he hasn't given up. He was brought up with it as a kid and here he is. I don't know how old he is. What is he in his sixties, seventies now? And he is still out there like $10 billion in vaccines and abortion programs around the world because he still <laughs> believes in it. So right. this, this guy's a crusader. He believes in depopulation. Uh, it's interesting. I was listening to another talk of his recently when he said that, uh, I think it was 2015 actually, or six, 2015 or 16, and he talked about the last, uh, the last global simulation for pandemics we had was in 2001. Uh, and it's interesting. So let's because run it live. That's what he said. Let's get out yeah, there and run so, it live. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting because the SARS epidemic then just ha happened right after that in 2002. And then uh, he, the very the next the next time he ran a pandemic scenario was just this last fall, a month before this outbreak. So it does make one. Uh, you put these start putting these pieces together, and once you start realizing how these people, you know, broadcast what they're doing to the world in secret, you know. It does make you scratch your chin a little bit. It's like, there's a lot of coincidence, co coincidences lining up here, right? All right. So now let's take a look at the actual yeah. coronavirus. Yeah. And once again, before we get into all the evidence that you've accumulated to say that it definitely is man-made. Now, let's say, let's just take it. Hey, it's man-made. Do you think yeah. that the current outbreak is purposeful? Either Bill Gates or, like I said, they want to crash the economy or Hong mm -hmm. Kong was just trying to, I mean, China was trying to take care of the Hong Kong situation. Or do you think these people, um, th th like, obviously they're creating these viruses probably with bad intentions, but this actual outbreak was an accident? Yeah, so... Um I am undecided on whether or not it's an accident. I will tell you, I know that we started out in the far, the nether regions of conspiracy here, and we're kind of bringing it in. Uh, I'll tell you, uh, there doesn't have to be any one reason with these people, especially because they operate networks, right? And partnerships and networks, many of them in secret or clandestinely. And they can kill many birds with one stone. A pandemic can achieve all sorts of objectives of big government and, and the globalists' goals, right? Uh, some people just want to get rich. And uh, so this is going to help some people get really rich, right? Some people want to suppress like the freedom movement in Hong Kong, and those people are going to be benefited. The Fed, right? Uh, maybe the Fed needs a correction that's not their, quote unquote, not their fault, like your theory, it benefits them. So, uh, so uh, uh, there can be a mechanism that achieves many goals, right, at the same time. Uh, like, you know, like old Rahm Emanuel said, don't never let a crisis go to waste. So authoritarians everywhere are going to be looking at this as an opportunity uh, to shore up their power, you know, tighten up controls over media and information and the internet over healthcare, over whatever it is. Right. So whether some of that was planned ahead of time or not, they're going to be looking to exploit this. And a lot of people are going to be 
making a buck off it as well, right? So I don't think it's any one, I don't think it necessarily has to be any one thing, especially if this is some sort of intentional uh, release. I would think that it, they had multiple objectives in mind. Right. You don't you don't spend all the years and the billions of dollars that this required lining up all the pieces for, you know, for just kind of like one one thing or something. Right. All right. So now let's establish just how bad it actually is. So I've heard diverse theories here. I've heard that it's kind of like the flu. The mortality rates as low as two percent. I've heard that um, it could be that a lot of the reporting that's going on is actually they're trying to dramatize how bad it is. And maybe a lot of the illnesses are actually people who are showing symptoms but are sick from other things. Or a lot of the deaths that are going on could just be flu, pneumonia, or other things. And then I've heard on the other side that what's scariest about this one is that people don't show symptoms for a while. So the actual ability to contain it, contain it is like almost non-existent. And then we've also had now occasions where people were cleared of symptoms and then then they came back. Um, and then I've also heard that they might be a year away from a cure if they can just get like FDA approval. So I've read everything on this. And what's fascinating about being a person who tries to research and follow the news, I have not come across a lot of information in terms of um, the mortality rate. And then also it's hard to decipher news from, hey, am I one of these people that just reads too much in the news? So this seems like a panic, the same as uh, Y2K seemed like a panic or Ebola virus coming over here seemed like a panic. It's hard to differentiate mm-hmm. fact or fiction. So it's a it's yeah. a signal from noise. It's a signal from noise or fact from fiction problem, right? When you when you flood uh, f- flood the signal with with everything, there's all sorts of noise and it can, can be hard to pick find the thread, the strand that's that's the true one, right? And listen, I put out in a tweet thread, you know, I think that if you remember early on back in the early to mid January, when this was really starting to uh, hit social media, there were all these videos flooding the internet of people eating bats or eating these weird creatures, you know, jokes and memes. And, you know, I've been on social media for a long time and it is hard to get traction with memes online. And I think some, and we know these social media platforms, you know, they, they manipulate trends, right? And they decide what's going to be popular and what's not going to be popular. And the media does this too, right? It's all very controlled. And if people, and by the way, tangent, if people think that the media isn't like highly controlled, then, then like. I'm sorry, there's no hope for you <laughs> yeah. uh, at this point, at this point, right? If you haven't figured out that the media is controlled, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, there's no hope for you, but please get off the plantation if you can. Uh, so I think that that was sort of a, that was a head fake, if you will, or a wind aided, uh, you know, disinformation op, if you will, uh, probably by China and, and maybe even um, coordinated with some of our own social media. Look, I mean, Twitter deplatformed uh, Zero Hedge early on, who was doing great reporting on this. Uh, they have done several things to my account uh, to try to restrict me from sharing information. Uh, they deplat- they've deplatformed a couple other Chinese uh, guys that have been passing on insider information. They've been cooperating with the the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, right? Uh, I think it's pretty evident. Or maybe even cooperating with our own government, who doesn't want people to understand the magnitude of what's going on. But I think. I think it's the mask is slipping because the CDC came out a couple of days ago and said, Hey, look, uh, you know, prepare for pandemic. That's basically what they said. You know, after saying for a long time that it's just the flu, there's only, you know, 12 cases or 15 cases or whatever. Uh, I think they're trying to protect the markets. They're trying to prevent a panic and they're sort of, I think it's clear that they're trying to manage, if you will, they're trying to manage the outbreak to sort of, uh, keep it without, you know, keep it from getting out of control and, and, you know, wrecking the, the GDP, you know, because it's all about the GDP, especially in an election year. 
if if you can really foresee and go, hey, this is going to be a pandemic. So then telling everyone, hey, everything's fine to keep the market alive. I mean, the best that that's going to do for you is allow the people who really know that it's going to shit to maybe get out of positions. And like, in other words, right. it is going to go to shit. You're not really it, like that's actually more of a war on the general population, because if you gave us the warning now, hey, here are the supplies you need to stock up on or like, in other words, if I knew that your house was getting struck by lightning and I didn't kind of give you the warning, you, you know, you're being uh -huh. a dick. So if you know, if they know with yep. absolute certainty that this is going to be an absolute, <laughs> yeah. like a total pandemic, the fact that they're not coordinating with media, with the fucking army, with every available resource to start and like get ahead of it and, you know, start quarantining whoever they can and maybe having everyone fucking work from home and figuring out how Amazon just delivers us all of our food and gets us the resources that we need. But the point is like for them to cover it up when they know with absolute certainty that it's going to go to shit. The only reason why they would do that is to kind of be protecting whatever, you know, stock market positions they have. I don't well, really see any other upside. <laughs> well, Robbie, I, I think that you hit the nail on the head there, because again, if you, if you approach this from uh, the point of view of an average citizen who just wants to live life and help other people like most of us, that's what you would do. But what people have to remember is that we have all these mechanisms of power that have their hands on levers of power. And these mechanisms and levers of power attract people who want power, right? Uh, that's who is attracted to them, just like, you know, pedophiles are attracted to drag queen story hour and, and the Boy Scouts, right? Uh, so people who crave power, who want power and gain and, and sort of cheap rents or use the government for, you know, for rent seeking, they're attracted to those, uh, to those positions and bureaucracies are, it's called bureaucratic capture, right? They're captured. So you hit the nail on the head and here's some evidence in July, there's $425 million worth of bonds that are maturing that will go bad if, if the world health organization declares a pandemic before July. So of course the world, uh, and you can look this it's, it's online. Zero hedge was covering it. And I, I think I saw it in some other outlets. So 420, $25 million of bonds that are uh, maturing in July that will not, uh, that will uh, not, that uh, for the payout, uh, they cannot declare a pandemic. Before okay. So July. I got to ask so, you about that. That yeah. sounds, uh, all right. I, I'm not that well-versed <laughs> in finance, but that sounds to me uh, like a weird speculative derivative product where you're tying some sort of a financial gain bet against the who making a release about whether or not a pandemic takes place. How could yeah. that be tied it, into a bond? It's, a, it's well, it's a funding mechanism. Uh, so bonds are fundamentally they're sort of like loans, right? You right. you purchase a bond, and then whoever issues no, your bond is going to take your money, and they're going to yeah. do something with it, right? How can that so be tied into looked, a pandemic? Well, um, I honestly I haven't I haven't looked too far into it. I just kind of skimmed the article uh, last right. night, in fact, okay, or yesterday. But so we can we can uh, people can look that up and, and read for themselves. But um, it might be tied in with the World Bank. Um, and it might be tied in with like getting, you know, uh, certain like healthcare uh, organizations or infrastructure set up. Right. Um, and uh, and so that would provide. So, so that would be something like that would provide a, uh, a motivation for the World Health Organization to not drag its feet. Right. You have a limited time. Here's your money. You have a limited time to get this set up. And the longer you take, the bigger the chance is, you know, for something, you know, I, I'm not exactly sure. I don't know all the details of the bond, but I, uh, but that article is out right, there. So People can read it. And decide if we're taking if we're taking the approach now and we're saying this is 100 percent going to be a pretty bad pandemic. Um, so in your opinion, like, I don't know, are you like currently starting to take precautions like 
what would you kind of absolutely yeah so what uh what are you gearing up for um well so i've got about a month month and a half of food uh i don't i don't have a lot of water i'm probably gonna get a couple weeks worth of water uh like down at, go to costco and get some you know cases of water bottles or something uh but um you know, I, I'm LDS, a uh, member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My whole life, uh, the church has taught us to practice provident living where you put you put away for a rainy day. It means you save some money for a rainy day. That means you save food for a rainy day. Uh, and for for could be whatever. Right. It's just it's just it's just provident living. Right. Just responsible living. And so I've, I've had about a month, month and a half food supply. It's not a lot. It's the church encourages at least three months. So I'm, I'm actually a bit of a slacker. Uh, so I'll be looking to beef that up perhaps. Um, I've reached out to some friends and, and family to make sure, see how they're doing on that and encourage them to sort of get ready as well. I don't want to create a panic because right. this is just a good way to live. You know, it, it's just good to have something put away, you know, for, for whatever contingency you lose your job, uh, the power goes out, you know, natural disasters, whatever it is, it's just a good idea. And so you don't have to panic, uh, stock up and, and, and be prepared. But like, look, if you were in China, over the last month and a half and you didn't have food and water stores, like you were kind of screwed because that meant you had to go out in public and they had these quarantines and people were dropping like flies. The virus was everywhere. We've seen the videos of them like pumping these chemicals into the air to try and disinfect the air and the streets and buildings and people. Uh, they put 800 million people under quarantine, right? I saw pictures of Milan this week where the grocery store shelves are absolutely empty right in Italy. Uh, and, and I saw today that Costco is completely sold out of their emergency food packs. So, uh, you know, it's just a good idea to be prepared when these things hit, you know, if you're prepared, you don't have anything to fear or not as much to fear. Like if you don't want to go out in public, if you have water and food, uh, and you can just go back and forth to your job. And if you don't work, you just stay home and you don't have to worry as much about, you know, getting infected, especially if you're old or if you're immunocompromised or have a, you know, or something. So I think it's just a good idea. No reason to panic, but behave prudently. You know, let's, let's get back to that American responsibility. Um, all right. So now we're going to get into the heart of the issue, which is uh, you had sure. put out a really interesting chain of tweets where you collected all the evidence to say, Hey, this is clearly man-made. Don't believe this bat soup nonsense. Um, this was because of the, uh, basically what you were saying is the global arms, uh, for bioweapons. Um, and I think you were tracking it back to Canada, going to China, either stolen from them or, but why don't you, you, you did a lot more research on this. I read everything that you put out. I found it fascinating. Uh -huh. So br give us the case here. Well, so uh, <clears throat> since nine 11, there has been an explosion in biological research and development. Uh, I actually used to work in, in biotech research and development at a medical testing facility. Uh, I was called um, ARUP. ARUP. I worked at the... Do you do weird ARUP, shit to monkeys? Uh, <laughs> no, no, but uh, I helped develop uh, clinically diagnostic, clinical diagnostic tests for things like mycoplasma pneumonia, uh, chlamydophilia, uh, metanumovirus, uh, things like this. Uh, and, and I do have a research and academic research background as well. So I do understand the biology to some degree and I have uh, clinical, uh, bio, uh, biology training, right? So, uh, I, I've, this is kind of something I've, I've kept track of, but, uh, you have different tiers of, of 
biosafety laboratories, one, two, three, and four. And it's called BSL, you know, two, three, four. And BSL four is the highest level of, of security for doing biological research and development. And since 9-11, there's been an absolute explosion in BSL-4 uh, containment laboratories around the world and in the United States. The United States, I want to say, has added like 10 or 12 or 13 since 9-11. Uh, uh, Great Britain or the UK has added perhaps as many as eight or nine. Uh, there, if, you, if you look at my tweet thread, which I assume you're going to publish uh, or link people to, and by the way, my, my Twitter handle is Sam Parker Senate. Um, so I'll say that again. It's just Sam Parker Senate, just like it sounds. And you can find my uh, tweet thread. It's pinned. Uh, there will be a chart. I went through it. It took a while uh, to track down all the BSL-4 labs in the world I could. And there's been like a uh, almost up to a 75% expansion in BSL containment laboratories just since 2001. The United States, States has spent somewhere in between $100 and $200 billion on this and that we know of, probably more. wouldn't be surprised. Uh, we've even been sending millions of dollars to the Wuhan BSL-4 lab. Uh, various United, uh, U.S. military and government agencies have been giving grants uh, to their viral research programs in Wuhan. And, and that's widely considered to be the center of uh, or the crown jewel in China's biowarfare program. If, if you read the articles and you read the global intelligence commentators who study this, uh, there's just been a – there's. I think it's it might have started with a fear that uh, the, the terrorists or terrorism or a rogue nation could develop a biological agent. And so maybe it started innocently. I don't know. But the United States and other countries said, oh, well, we're going to have to make sure that we have countermeasures against these rogue states. And of course, once you start playing defense like that, then you have to start thinking up, right? You have to start thinking up, well, what are they going to do and how are we going to counter it? And then at some point, you know, you turn into the monster, right? What's that famous line from Dark Knight where it's like you live long, you know, you live long enough to die or see yourself be, or the hero lives long enough to either die or see themselves become the enemy or I, the I'm something quote, like that. But, yeah. Yeah. But but I, I think we have a situation. It's just like the Cold War where we had a nuclear arms race where at first we were defending ourselves, perhaps from Soviets and fascism and and, and, and communism. And then after a while, it just was like who had more nukes and could like outlast the other guy. And, and I think that's what's the, this bio, uh, you know, the, this bio arms race has become, it's like, who's got the most resources to throw at this. And we just keep, keep having to throw money at things and keep building up programs. And then people keep thinking of stuff. And of course, intelligence agencies get involved and they start playing shenanigans. I mean, we can talk, we don't need to, you know, people know what the CIA has been up to, you know, since the fifties and sixties, you know, with all the shenanigans they've been involved in, they start, you know, people start doing devious things, you know, they get into power at first. It starts out as national defense and then it becomes an arms race and then you get bad actors and then you got internecine conflicts and intelligence games. And, and I think that's what you have here with this, with this biological buildup. There's just no reason in my opinion, to have this massive explosion in BSL-4 containment labs around the world. Like, every country is getting in on this action. Like, why does every why does everybody in the world need these things? They only study the most dangerous stuff like Ebola. Like, why is some country, like, not in, not in Timbuktu, <laughs> mind you, not in West Africa, why do we need 13 labs in the United States studying Ebola? 
You know, why, why does Brazil need labs, you know, studying Ebola? You know, why does China need, China wants a whole network of BSL-4 labs. Why does China need a whole network of BSL? Why does, why does Great Britain or the UK, I keep saying Great Britain, I, I mean the UK, why does it need 10 or 12 or 13 or, you know, BSL-4 labs, that tiny island nation? Well, what's going on here, you know? And the experts that, that keep track of this stuff, they say, well, it's, it's clearly a bio-arms race. And I think they're right, you know? It's fascinating because it's like, uh, I mean, I, I, you're more uh, conservative leaning, I'm more libertarian leaning, but it's like, it, to me, this is like one of those things where it's the risk of governments and the power and resources that they have. Is Absolutely. That, yeah, they're investing it in things that can wipe out all of society. So it's like the risk factor here is no, we shouldn't have institutions this large and powerful because it's not yes. like they're making the investments to help us. They're making nukes, which is the biggest thing that's a risk or these arms that i mean these diseases that never would have been created by you know a monkey having sex with a gay airplane pilot that then gets made into soup I, i'm just you know being ridiculous they've been here eating but... bats. they've been eating bats forever in china or whatever they've been eating weird stuff maybe not bats it's always but but other weird. i've been eating all kinds of weird stuff in china for hundreds thousands of years right right there's hundreds of wet markets all over china what are the chances that this novel coronavirus uh, that has gain of function. So that's a term meaning that like it works like better than a, a normal disease. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it has biological characteristics in its DNA and its proteins that aren't seen in other viruses in its family or in its line. Right. And it, uh, where did this gain of function come from that enhances its infe infectivity of humans, right? Where did that come from? There was just a, a paper published, I think, on February 10th in is it the Journal of Virology, where they talk about a, gain, uh, a protein uh, in its a capsid protein of, of this coronavirus that demonstrates gain of function that actually enhances uh, its infective properties. Uh, and it's not seen in other, and this, this change is not seen in other coronaviruses that it's, that it's related to. Um, where did that come from? And, and how is it that this, that this outbreak occurred within walking distance of this, of this wet market, right? Uh, or, or, or at this, they say it's oh, from this wet market, but this wet market's within walking distance of China's flagship BSL-4 lab. What are the chances when they have wet markets all over the country? Right. So it just it, it uh, and I've seen I've even seen articles from China that purport. I don't read Chinese, but I'm told that these articles say that even the Chinese state television and media is has been telling the Chinese people that this is a bioweapon either from the Europeans or from America. So even China is seems to be tacitly admitting that this is not a natural pathogen. And they're trying to get out in front of it with their own citizens and say it wasn't us. All right. right. So there's, you know, uh, and who knows, like we, we were given that lab millions of dollars. Why is the United States funding a Chinese BSL-4 lab, right? Especially when we have a bunch of our own BSL-4 labs that can do it, right? Why, why are we giving millions to China? To say? So, I mean, there could be collaboration. We don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on. I can't tell you all the reasons and pick apart the motivations and the, the scheming. But I can tell you this. I can tell you the official story we're getting is not true. It's not real. I can tell you this is not a natural pathogen. This has been, this is the result of, of a biological R&D. Whether they are trying to create something, uh, sort of, mimic a bioweapon so that then they could create a vaccine and it escaped on them, you know, or they had some other, some other subterfuge in mind. I, I can't tell you that, but I can tell you this is clearly an artificially constructed pathogen. 
Uh, it came from a lab that specializes in doing that kind of stuff. And it's not a coincidence. I mean, really, 800 million, you've seen the pictures, 800 million people under quarantine. They're driving machines up and down streets, spraying chemicals, people wearing hazmat suits, the body bags, uh, you know, the crematoria that are running 24 seven. Um, this is not just the flu. So I, I can't, I can't tell you that this is who did it and why, but I can tell you that it's man-made uh, with like 98 and a half percent confidence. Right. All right. There you go. And uh, if you're interested in more of those details and you want to read through the articles, the chain is right on your Twitter page um, and it's right yeah. pinned on top. So it's really easy to find. Yeah. Um, okay. So next thing I, I, we're going to move away from this. There's some other, um, random issues that I think you have some interesting insights on. And the first one is I read, um, it was either a tweet of yours or it was, no, no, no. It was up on your Facebook page and it was about how TikTok is basically, um, a Chinese (laughs) technology app that is being used in uh, in other words to, uh, kind of monitor American behaviors and habits and have an understanding, not just that it's basically a big data collection, um, app created by China. Um, like, okay. So what I found really interesting about that, it's not just collecting, it's not just collecting and observing it's shaping, right? Because again, these social media platforms, uh, they, they're, they're internal operators. They can decide what trends, what gets seen, who sees what, right? And just like our own social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter and Reddit and YouTube, uh, they, they can suppress any information they want and they can, they can uh, promote any information they want. So, so China uh, like now has like a pipeline into the minds of all our nation's youth. And uh, I think the the post you saw was the promotion of an abortion video. It was it was showing right, a, a, yeah. a young girl a young girl who was celebrating her abortion. It was it was I think it was set up to be a gender reveal, uh, but then the twist ending is that she's we getting an abortion. It. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and she's celebrating, and it had like I don't know millions of likes or something, and probably gazillion, tens of millions of views. But there are doctors on there now who are pushing you know quote unquote, reproductive health and abortion for teens. Uh, and, and who knows what else? I'm not on TikTok. I just kind of casually see some of this stuff. But there's adults on there. There's probably predators on there. Uh, I'm sure that they're pushing, uh, you know, socialism and communist agenda type stuff and philosophies through it. Uh, but the point is, is it's, it's one of the most popular apps for young people in America right now. And it's controlled by China. So China can sort of, you know, it can influence our culture, like in a massive subtle way that that we can't appreciate and i think parents need to be careful plus they're also taking data and spying on us right okay so that's what i want to get yeah. into with the uh yeah. uh I, i'm not going to pronounce it correctly but houthi why and the 5g and all that's going on right now with uh how many trade secrets china steals from us and exactly well all right just to kind of outline the risk and then we're going to get into a little more detail but what's so interesting is there's big data collections going on and i don't quite understand why that resource is so important to government. I've even seen that like Google is essentially an AI corporation where since they're able to see every single search and what everyone's like, they're really just working towards AI. Now, I can't really tell you what this asset is and what government's able to do in terms of manipulation or understanding us 
All I know is that it's really important to government. Like you see how much uh, data that like the NSA was purchasing from AT&T that came a couple years ago. Um, There's clearly a tie in between these social media companies and like they've been kind of bullied into, hey, you're going to have to give us access. Like I think that's what was going on with Facebook that uh, Zuckerberg kept getting pulled in. Okay, so let's just understand big data is really important to governments and it's one of the tools that they're using to kind of secure and entrench themselves with power. But now if you start understanding that free American consumers are just going to go for whatever's cheapest, and there is something very weird about American infrastructure, which now technology, wireless, and internet is like, uh, not that I would say it should be a government resource, I would never say that, but it is definitely crucial infrastructure, not in the same way as water, but it is a communications tool that if it went down, we'd have some significant problems. Now, if you start understanding that because free choice and consumers are just going to buy the cheapest option and the Chinese, uh, you know, basically it could be basically funded just by the Chinese government and that's why it's cheaper. And all of a sudden, all of America is running on the uh, Houthi Y cheapest 5G. And now they're collecting mm-hmm. all of our data um, and the American government's not. Are you talking? Are you referring yeah. to Huawei? Hawaii. Hawaii yeah, Huawei. thank you. Yeah, yeah I never I, yes. I only read yeah. and I don't listen to the news. So like I just have to make yeah. up my own enunciation. So <laughs> OK, yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> OK, so what's interesting about this is and I, I, I'm I'm like a anarcho libertarian. So almost on every issue I go, hey, free market. We don't need the government. It's not going to help us out. Now in oh, this, I'm right there with you. Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought you were a little more conservative yeah, yeah. Well, based off foreign well, policy, I mean, but I, 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 I'm very religious, and so I have sort of a concern. I, I do believe in in value systems because I don't think you can get rid of them, and you have to. So, like, my my issue, my issue, if step, stepping back with yeah. this, you know, straight anarcho libertarianism, is that uh, it it tells you uh, or. It, it gives you freedom, right? But it doesn't tell you what to do with it, if you will, right? And in my estimation, um, you can't just take a bunch of different people from different cultures and races and, and systems and dump them on an island and tell them, hey, just don't aggress against each other. And and then that will be magically be sufficient for them to all get along. Um, I think that for, you know, anarcho-libertarian anarcho-libertarianism to work, it, it requires a very, very high degree of homogeneity between culture, race, uh, religious background, uh, perhaps even IQ. This stuff's going to get me in all kinds of trouble for saying something. <laughs> but, but like a lot of commonalities in high-functioning consciousness and capability, right? A high degree of altruism, high degree of peaceful, like non-aggressive uh, tendencies, right? Uh and unless you have this high degree of homogeneity uh, in in your in your culture, uh, you know that that basically is a culture then that is is glued together by other rules outside of legal rules, right? Right. You have to be glued together in some ways, and sort of laws are sort of just the last the last resort, right? So that's my sort of my problem with with I, anarcho-libertarianism. Uh, I even somewhat if, if you yeah. will. No, yeah. no. So. I, I'm not. It always, tells you what you yeah. can do. It doesn't tell you what you should do, right? If that makes sense, it tells you what you can do, like whatever you want. Just don't hurt other well, people. Well, I think but, uh, but that can be. Life, I think is yeah. more than that, you know. Well, I think that that yeah. some ways can be policed by uh, market forces, and that you have right. to kind of be cooperative. But with that being said, I also think that there. Yeah. Um, 
I like I, I'm okay with the government. Str- I mean, this is a weird way of looking at it, but I think people are motivated by systems that they want to make work. And so even yeah. in a small scale, socialism can work if there's an opt in clause where everyone feels like it's a fair system and they want to really work hard to make that socialist system work. That's like a kibbutz kind of thing. I think, you know, like any government can work if everyone really buys in and they want to work hard to make it work. Now, like that doesn't mean that it will necessarily work as well as the absolute free market or the high IQ people that feel comfortable with the anarcho system because they have a full understanding of it. But people who feel like they're forced into that and they're completely uncomfortable because they in their brains can't wrap their head around the fact, hey, we don't need this government that's actually policing everybody. They'll never feel comfortable in that. And that's just not going to work for them. Like, you know what I mean? They'll never buy into it. There's kind of like a human opt-in clause. But just kind of going back to this uh, China thing, because this one to me is a pretty, um, I'm sure that there is, if I brought on one of the better libertarian scholars, they'd have the answer. They tell me why this is more of a government issue. Um, But it does seem to me like the China tech, um, both stealing American, uh, and I know some uh, some, uh, uh, libertarians go so far as to say there is no such thing as intellectual um, property. Um, But the- But the uh, infrastructure, this one, I'm just saying this one's a really interesting one to me because it does seem like, hey, maybe we do need government to step in on this one and protect us from ourselves that we'll all just opt into this cheaper technology, which might empower foreign government. But go for it. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you kind of what what my campaign platform around this was. Listen, first of all, we live in a country, right? And what's the point of having a country if the country's not looking out for the interest of its citizens? So I'll, I'll put that out there, right? Otherwise... Otherwise, what's the point? Like, what's the point of even having a country, right? It's, it's like a company. A company's got employees and it has products and services. But if you're not going to protect your employees or provide products and services then like, or service your customers, then what's the point of your company, right? And same thing with a country. Uh, you know, a country is a, it's a, it's a group of people with borders, language, and culture. I know some people don't believe in that, but that's what I believe in. And, and, and with citizens, right? And therefore, the country and the government should look after the inter- the best interests of its citizens. Now, China steals. We'll just pick a number that's that's kind of an average number. About four hundred billion dollars uh, in IP and, and tech every year from the United States. About four hundred billion dollars, and that adds up after a while, right? Um, and uh, what I think that we ought to do uh, is cut taxes and regulation enormously, so that Americans. And then we can place, you know, we can put penalties on China to keep them from doing it because they're not going to stop. They're an authoritarian regime that's not going to stop unless we make them stop, right? The anti-bullying movement, right, is not going to work on China. This, oh, stop bullying us. Oh, stop stealing from us. This is not going to work with China, right? You have to meet them on the battlefield. Uh, And so, You know, okay, slapping tariffs on them or other restrictions, okay, it might make our products and services a little bit more uh, expensive that we're getting really, really cheaply from China. But if we reduce internal tariffs and internal regulations and taxes in the United States, then we don't have to worry about that. that In other words, you can almost price them out of the market if there was total freedom over here amongst goods and trade. Like we wouldn't yeah, have that much out. of an issue. Yeah. yeah. Or price them out or it would be so close that we don't have to worry about, you know, saving five bucks on a, on a toaster oven versus national secu- long-term national security or something. Right. Uh, I love toaster ovens, by the way, I do have a microwave <laughs> as well, but, but, uh, my girlfriend is, she loves the toaster oven, right. Cause it doesn't okay. make her food soggy. But, uh, anyway, so, 
a uh, little aside there. But by the uh, way, that's uh, that's a I, that know, is a great you know. insight. Firstly, I'm not a big fan of microwaves. Like, uh, I just, they just kind of weird me out. I, I'm just not like I, they weird me out. I don't like using the microwave. But that's also accurate. If you're like reheating a slice of pizza, you throw it in the toaster oven. That thing's gonna be crispy yes, all over. Definitely. Toaster ovens put definitely. microwaves to shame. I like yeah. your girlfriend. You got a yes. winner there, sir. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, she's great. Uh, but anyway, so that's what I. That's my stance on China. Like, let. Let's radically free up our citizens and our intellectual capital and our business and industry and our citizens from the lowest of the low up to the top of the top. Let's cut, 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 slash, slash, slash. And and, and then we don't have to make these. Well, yeah, but like if we put tariffs on China or restrict China in any way, then we're hurting the American consumer. But do you think, uh, you know, let's do something. So where we don't have to make that trade off is what I'm saying. So what about this one though? Do you think that regular, like government regulations should exist, I guess, to protect us from, um, certain Chinese tech companies that I guess would be collecting data. That's not in our interest. Like, is that, you know, and I'm, by the way, I'm not saying yes or no. I, I would, I would just venture to say no based off a principle. And then I would try and figure out kind of, I would be working off of no to figure out, well, why do I think that they shouldn't be operating that way? But it is an interesting risk factor that exists well, right now. I think it's a national, yeah. it is a national security issue because do we want any foreign entity to just be able to influence our culture? Is that what we want? I mean, do we, do we want America to be corrupted? Like if I'm a, if I'm a state actor with lots of resources and I hate America, it's so easy for me to undermine America. I can send drugs through the the southern border, right? I can pay for massive immigrant immigrant waves to inv- uh, to invade America. I can buy off politicians like Joe Biden or Mitch McConnell, who have been bought off by China for a long time now. And you can read uh, read uh, uh, some. You can find books on this by what's uh, what's his name, Peter. Um, Oh, I'm forgetting his. Uh, I'm forgetting his, his name's escaped me. But he he talks about how China has bought off our elites for the longest time. But then time. I guess the only other yeah. like th- the only other like you take uh, RT, which I don't read that often, but that's like the Russian uh, whatever. Russia sometimes, today, yeah. yeah. Sometimes the diversity of information and the fact that these um, other governments it's better than our own. It's well, that's what I was going to say. They actually <laughs> corrode because, like, in other words, if if no outside information got in, which I think there's, uh, I'm starting to notice on Google, it's so hard to find like information that just used to be like Google's I'm starting garbage. To, yeah, Google's brave. Garbage, stop using it. Brave Everybody, and, stop using Google. Okay, yeah, brave and duck, duck, go. Go. That's yeah. that's the way to do yeah. it, right? Is well, I don't know that any. I honestly don't know that any search engines are. Uh, I use Brave uh, for the ad blocker and the non-tracking. But any search engines, they're all completely corrupted. Uh, you can't find one that's not. But I will say that Bing for regular search, just for whatever you're looking for, I have found to be a far superior search engine to Google. So on just whatever I'm looking for in articles or information. You're you know, back duck, on duck, Gates' go, side? Think, well, <laughs> I was. let me qualify. <laughs> I, I don't think any search engines, any decent search engines are um, – non-controlled or non-manipulated if you will um so you have to pick your poison to some degree like all these giant corporations we have to buy we're, we're at their mercy we ha- like i can't say i can't not everybody can tap out of all life with corporations and businesses right uh but i i am just saying uh that bing is a superior search engine to google and in as much as Google has what, like ninety-five percent of the space, I'm going to give my I'm going to do give my business somewhere else. Plus, they're a better search engine, anyway. Man, I think you might. It's just, not great. 
I think you might have just lost great, someone on that one. I think there might have been some well, people listen, the whole time. They were I like, I'm on board. I don't think this guy listen. said anything inaccurate. And then all of a sudden you endorse <laughs> Bing and they're like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm endorsing yeah. Bing over Google. Okay. Uh, I also use DuckDuckGo. I use, uh, what's it, SirX, whatever that's called. Uh, I use Yandex from Russia as well. I use a variety of search engines. I don't use just one. Right. But I, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to discourage people from just relying on Google for everything. Uh, and to, to your point about this insul insularity, like we have to have outside influences. I do agree with that too, especially, uh, right now because the U S government corporate media access, if you will, is endeavoring to control information completely. Right. And that's dangerous. So we definitely have to have outside voices, but there's a balance. Where's that balance? I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not certain where I draw that line and just and going and then backing up further to your, you know, your libertarian comments. Uh, there has I do believe in some degree of regulation and government intervention, but it's much, much, much smaller than than now. Right. I'm a I'm a constitutionalist. I'm a pre-1913 constitutionalist. If you get on my Twitter, you'll you'll see that I say that the, the federal government seceded from the states in 1913 with the 17th Amendment, where they they took they kicked the states out of having representation in the federal government. Right. Where they put the Senate under direct Democratic election rather than being the representative state legislatures. So. We kicked the states out, so the states are no longer present in the federal government. The, so literally, the federal government has seceded from the states, okay? And it's basically divorced itself from the people because in 1910, they froze the House of the Representatives, which constitutionally is supposed to grow with, with population. But they've frozen it at 435. Now, since 1910, our country has basically tripled or more in size, okay? Uh, but our our House of Representatives has stayed the same size. So we don't even get represent democratic representation through the House. So our federal government has has kind of divorced or separated itself. Uh, it's an estranged spouse from the people, if you will. It's not under the control of the people. Uh, so the, the federal government in, in most ways is completely divorced and seceded from the states and the people. It's controlled by big money, wealthy interests, American, non-American, uh, but it's not controlled by we the people, right? So I'm a very strict pre-1913 constitutionalist. Uh, I believe that the, gov the federal government does have some roles in some of these things, but it's vastly less, vastly, maybe like one-tenth or even less than that. Maybe like maybe like one-twentieth of what it is right now, right? Uh, so it does have a role. And I think as you go down the totem pole, getting more and more closer to the, to the local, uh, to your locality, that's where things get more and more, uh, I'm, don't get crazy, folks. I'm just using an analogy here. Things get more and more communist and socialist the closer you to get to home, right? Uh, so I, I saw on Joe Rogan, I forget the gentleman's name, but he said in a family, families, it's like communist, right? In my family, it's like communist. You share. Like, yeah. Mom and, yeah, you share, right? And maybe in an extended family or a church, it's like socialism, right? Right. Uh, and, and then in your city, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's some sort of quasi- thing right but then as you get up into the state and federal level now you're talking libertarianism and anarcho-libertarianism where the further you get away from people and local issues and local problems 
uh, the less power and influence they have. Whereas right now it's like the opposite, right? The, the federal government's the, the 800 pound gorilla, the behemoth that just muscles everything else out. Like you have cities and schools in the local level now getting grants and money from the federal government with federal strings attached, right? It's, it's completely opposite of how things should be. So if you've been on my Facebook page, which you have, you'll see that I had a saying, it's called Mogla. M-A-G-L-A, MAGLA. It's a, it's, a, it's a play off of MAGA, but it means make American government local again. And what I mean by that is let's take the power and money back away from these massive federal and state governments and give it back to counties and cities and people. And because when you, have, when you try to have one size fits all, it breaks things. And let me give you an example that I think will resonate with people. Uh, you live in Connecticut, right, Robbie? I, I mean, I live you, in I live in Astoria live? now. For uh, I mean, I, okay. I work. Yeah. Well, I didn't I didn't mean to dox you. Sorry. <laughs> no, no worries. Uh, no one's coming Yankees, after me. Are you a Yankees fan, a Red Sox fan? So I've you, uh, I, I've somewhat a uh, fan at all. I've somewhat uh, stopped following sports over the year, other than uh, UFC. <laughs> okay. But I used to be a big Yankees fan. I lived in Washington Heights. We okay. used to go to games all the time. I know you got the Cubs okay. hat on, which is old yeah. school. <laughs> I like it. I used to work for the Cubs. Yeah. Hell yeah. Um, so, so, uh, so here, here's the deal. What if the federal government one day said, you know what, folks, there's just, we, we're so far in debt and we don't have enough resources to support four major sports leagues or five major sports leagues. Uh, we're going to have one, we're going to have one size fits all universal sports league. Okay. Okay. Uh, and, and we're going to decide whether it's going to be baseball or football or the NBA or, or major league soccer or NHL or something. Right. Well, what kind of firestorm would that ignite in the country? What people would be like, think about politicizing sports like that. Like where we have to choose one I want my sport female soccer going to be the sport, right? Uh, people you're going to turn, you're going to turn that into an absolute knock down drag out battlefield where people are playing to win they're playing to the death because there's a room there's like the highlander there can be only one right there can be only one and, and so and, and let's take that even further let's say there can only be two teams or uh, in that league so uh okay let's say it's gonna be the nfl okay and we're only going to have two flagship NFL teams, and you got to choose one or the other. Two, you know, is it going to be the New England Patriots or the Seattle Seahawks, or the, you know, or the, or, or I don't know. Those are just two teams. I yeah. think I'm a Seahawks fan, but, uh, but think about how that would bifurcate the nation and how that would pit each other by politicizing that issue. How it would supercharge that issue and create massive fighting and, and fracture within the culture of the country overnight, right? That would be massive. You have, you know, 100 million sports fans or 150 million sports fans that all of a sudden now have to get community involved and donate money as to and choose a side. Well, that's what you have with Republicans and Democrats now, right? That's what you have with issues like universal health care, right? Uh, where we politicize these things at a one-size-fits-all level when 325 million people are not a one-size-fits-all group. So what Make American Government Local Again means is uh, – Things that aren't absolutely in everybody's best interest, like national defense, that ought to be something that, yeah, more or less we can treat, you know, 325 million people, 
you know, have a pretty similar interest in national defense, right? So that's why the federal government has national defense, right? Uh, that's just a, that's just an easy example. But whoever, but who's going to, you know, choose, uh, you know, what your speed limit on your street out in front of your house is? That should be up to your neighborhood or your city. That shouldn't be up to like federal government or the state, you know, or something. Uh, those are just some easy, like, or, or what kind of light bulb I'm going to use, you know, in in my house. Uh, these aren't things that we should be empowering the massive national bureaucracy and government with. I, but every every time you add something to this list of national issues, now you're forcing people to take political positions on them and, ha- and forcing them to choose often between a very limited set of choices. But if we can get if we can push this power and these these governmental privileges back down as far as we can to the local level, well, now communities now you can have a hundred thousand communities uh, leading. 100 with 100,000 choices or 50 states with 50 choices, you know, or 50,000 counties with 50,000 county choices rather than one or two choices yeah. for everybody that pits everybody against each other, puts us at each other's throats. I uh, so firstly, I agree. If we're going to have government, let's have it be as local as possible. Um, I, even though I, look, look, we don't have to debate it. I think the only thing that are somewhat yeah. interesting or might be the flaws is the nature of government to expand that even if you have it hyper local, um, does it just become bigger and bigger as our government kind of has? And then the other thing that's just interesting is on the national defense side is that even handing over that part power to the Fed, right. 50% of the spending is all going to that, which is clearly a waste yeah. and has clearly so been one of the biggest. Yeah. yeah. So I no no so There's I, other mechanisms involved. Listen, yeah. in terms of like yeah. what is the most reasonable way to kind of get us probably get us out of the current mess, it's uh you know to go as local as possible, hopefully default on the debt and have you know states secede from the union. That's probably what would <laughs> be have, well see. Yeah, I, you, you can go off on that. Locally, if you push the power locally, essentially what you have is states seceding from the union but yeah. remaining in the union. See, yeah. where, where they're taking their power back. Now I have my power back. I can be the state that I want to be. I can be the county and the city that I want to be without having to leave the union. It's the same thing. It's really the same thing, right? You yeah. don't have to lose the benefits and the synergy of having a national union, but I get my liberty back. I get my way of life back. I don't have to I, I, I don't have to have California values imposed on me in Nebraska. Which, by the way, it's you know, the because, it's the yeah. dumbest thing. The, I, I did a um, I, I did like this uh, series on YouTube years ago. It was called Rob's Newsroom, and I did an episode about break up the country. Mm-hmm. But what's so interesting about it is that it's so it, the current system just puts pits rural people against urban people, and there's literally no reason for urban people to make decisions for people like they're so different. Your dude who's living on a farm is very different than your guy living in California. Clearly, Clearly, they have a different choice of how they want to live their lives. There's literally no reason for either one of them to make any decisions for the other. The guy who decides that he wants to live in rural America, clearly just every choice he ever make is going to be different than the dude who lives in California. And so, like, there's just no... Yeah, I mean, that's what it all really just boils down to. Okay, so there were two other things I came across on your website that I thought were fascinating. Oh, can I give a... I'm sorry to interrupt you. Can I give you a plug right now? That's why I I battle and fight for and promote the Convention of States. It's called conventionofstates.com. People can go to it, conventionofstates.com. It's it's an organization dedicated to um, restoring the original constitution and introducing constitutional fixes, if you will, to restore federalism and true representative government back. So we can give the government back to the people because right now the people aren't in control. So anyway, that's my plug, conventionofstates.com, people. Go check it out. All right. So- 
two really great things that I came across on your website. The first is um, you had the most practical solution I've seen to the problem with school shootings, which was, hey, uh, I mean, you had a bunch of good ones, but this one was just so practical and made so much sense. I was curious to know if it was an original idea was why don't we take the officers that are just doing clerical and administrative work, you know, Give them some space within the school. Just turn two classrooms into the police officer, whatever, for the people that are doing that Mm -hmm. type of stuff. And then all of a sudden, every single school can have 20 police officers in it all the time, which is just going to make it a place that's not very sensical to participate in a school shooting. And it literally costs nothing. There's officers that have to do administrative duty. There's no reason why they all need to be. I'm sure they already have satellite offices. They're already already being paid. We're already paying for the school and the services. Let's just give them some space, right? Yeah. Uh, that's not an original idea. I forget where I heard that. Uh, I can't remember if I read it or somebody suggested it, but it's something I promoted. I, I will say that, um, number one, I don't think that the Constitution stops at the uh, the Second Amendment. My second, my rights that are recognized by the Second Amendment don't stop at a public school doorway. I think that's I think that's a fallacy. I think it's a problem. However, uh, back to what you're saying between people living in California or in some rural area, right? Uh, People have different sensibilities, different cultures, and different ideas. And so on my website and on my Facebook, I have I have different ideas. Like there's different solutions that people, you know, if you some places want to arm their teachers and train their teachers, great, do it. Um, some people just want to let citizens and uh, carry if they want, right? Other people want to have man traps where you have two sets of doors and people can't move in and out without authorization. And, you know, uh, other people want x-ray detectors. Then there's this idea of putting, uh, off duty or retired or administrative, uh, police officers uh, on site that we were just talking about, which, which I think has a lot of advantages because they're already trained in firearms, already trained in crisis situations, right? Uh, they have that training and expertise and it's not an extra burden really. Uh, we have ex, ex, uh, uh, service members that have been trained and have this expertise and, and could be great assets to their community. The idea uh, I've seen, um, I've seen in, I think Oklahoma or Nebraska or somewhere where they're piloting these um, hurricane or, or tornado, uh, not hurricane in the middles, but tornado uh, weatherproof, uh, you know, safe rooms in, in, that are like in the corner of a classroom, but they'd also be bulletproof. So they could be for tornadoes. They could be for school intruders. Right. So there's a variety of measures that uh, that communities could take. And I think the worst one is dearming the population and trampling on our Second Amendment rights. That's like the dumbest one and doesn't make any sense anyway. Even it's not only is anti-liberty and against the fundamental fabric, I think, of the uh, of the cultural heritage of our nation and, and tyrannical. I think it's just like the dumbest one. Right. <laughs> it's just silly. Um, school shootings can be prevented. We don't have school shootings in Utah. Uh, and, uh, there are other places that don't have school shootings because teachers are armed or citizens are armed or they're not gun free zones, you know? Uh, so I think that's a good one. I think there's a variety. I think communities ought to be able to, they ought to be able to be free to choose the ones that work for them, but there's just too much. There's too much bureaucracy from the state and the feds around this issue, I think, to allow citizens that leeway. All right. And then last one was in terms of uh, talking about immigration, you threw out a number, which uh, just caught my eye. I thought it was a really interesting argument. So I was curious to know where you got this from. But in conversation about, you know, building a border wall or putting more financing towards securing the border, you said that illegal um, American taxpayer, basically illegals cost American taxpayers around one hundred thirty five billion dollars a year. 
Um, yeah, that's which, right. When you put it in perspective, you're like, okay, yeah, put up the wall. So um, I was curious. It pays just to for know- itself in a couple months, right? It pays yeah. for itself in a few months. <laughs> yeah. So it's actually from a study um, from, oh, I'm, I'm spacing on the name of, it's a, it's a, you know, one of these, uh, it's one of these nonprofit groups, right? That, that, that puts out studies and it's like fair immigration, perhaps. I can't remember which one it is. I can, I can find it and uh, I can tweet it. Or I can send it to you and you can post it on this, uh, on this podcast for, for your listeners if you want so that they can find it. But yeah, it costs about $135 billion a year. And that was, I think, either 2013 or 2015 dollars. So it's probably more now. Um, and in fact, I've seen some other studies since then as well. So yeah, 135 billion a year. Now that's through education expenses. That's through various forms of welfare. Uh, that's, I think there's an estimate in there for infrastructure costs like roads, you know, uh, electrical grid, uh, things that wear and tear from more people using them. Uh, it's an, it's, it's an estimate, right? Uh, but I don't think it's even comprehensive. Uh, it says in the study, you know, what the factors they studied are and what those costs are, but it breaks it down in the study, it broke it down by state. Like here's how much it costs for each state. And then it added it all up. And for the country is about 135 billion. Now, in my opinion, it costs more. It's even more than that because the demographic, uh, transformation that has been happening to the United States since, uh, since the borders were opened in this manner in 1965 has been driving the expansion of government as well. You can look at the data and you can see that immigrants uh, tend to vote for bigger government. Right. Uh, and it's only legacy, uh, European American citizens who sort of hold the conservative line to use a, to use sort of a, um, just a common parlance, whether you're conservative or not. I mean, I'm just trying to say the traditional European American uh, is what's sort of holding the line on limited government, you know, uh, wanting absolute free speech rights, wanting, you know, absolute second amendment rights, you know, voting for smaller government, uh, immigrant, these massive immigration waves that are coming are transforming our government into a bigger government that they like bigger government. They like more of these socialistic type services and they're voting now. Uh, they're, you know, second and third uh, generation voters are voting now and they're voting for bigger government and that's costing us money too. Uh, and that's keeping our borders open as well. So I think it's, it's an excess. Uh, 135 billion is, is, is sort of like concretely estimable, but I think it's more than that when you uh, when factor you, in you know, uh, increased social spending. Yeah. All right, yeah. Sam, this was an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate you coming on and uh, all the insights and uh, hopefully we'll do it again down the line. Hey, Robbie, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Best of luck to you and your podcast and your listeners. Awesome. All Stay right. safe, America. <laughs> Get prepared. Like a leaf in the wind, you kept letting them in. They'd been selling you while you slept in again now the tide has come in with a note in a bottle that reads you and i don't fit in